This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R. We work out our bodies. Let's work out our minds. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month. You're like, what is BetterHelp? Why would I go there? Because it's it's online therapy, baby. That's right. You don't have to sit in traffic. Uh, It's cheaper. It's international. So wherever you are in the world, your therapist can go with you. And you don't even have to sit in an office. The best thing is you can do this from your phone. Uh, You can text. You can call. Within 48 hours, they're going to match you up with your own therapist. Some people have their own chef, their own personal trainer. You get your own therapist. How cool is that? And here's the best part. If you don't like the therapist, you can just find yourself another one. You know, They will match you up with another therapist. Because I have friends who are looking for therapist right now and they're saying how hard it is to find one everybody everybody got a therapist now it seems like nowadays so get one and and if you're one of those people who are like well my life is good everything's good i don't need a therapist that's why now is the time to get one because when life hits the fan and and inevitably it does right uh that's not the time to look for a therapist because it takes time to build rapport to connect for them to know your backstory, for you to feel comfortable. So get a therapist now, somebody that you can talk to, build a relationship with, and then you can take a break. But then you have, you know, you got that therapist in your pocket when things do hit the fan, when life does punch you in the face. And then you got that, now it's not even a therapist you're calling, it's a friend, but it's a friend who's gonna, who's gonna like make you feel safe and secure and hold all your secrets and, and show you how to grow and get unstuck. It's, it's the best friend in the world, right there in your pocket, on your cell phone. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is author Chester L. Richards. He, he's written the book, from the Potato to Star Trek and Beyond, Memoirs of a Rocket Scientist. Chester L. Richards is a retired aerospace engineer and inventor, 19 patents, people, 19, uh, and views life as a series of adventures. And here today, he's going to talk to us about From the Potato to Star Trek and Beyond, Memoirs of a Rocket Scientist. Welcome to the episode, Chester. Oh. Thank you so much, Leo. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my first question I like to ask all my guests is, what got you out of bed this morning? <laughs> oh, well, I woke up. <laughs> Isn't that the usual reason for getting? No, I guess people can sleepwalk, too. But I'm not. I don't think I do that. But I think, uh, no, I had to get up and go to the bathroom. What else do you do when you <laughs> when you've been asleep for a long time? So that, that was the first thing you, you had to hit the john there first thing in the morning. That, that got you out of bed, huh? Yeah. I, I love that. And and then so, you know, I've never asked this as a follow up question, but it's it would be so easy to go right back to bed. Why, why didn't you go right back to bed? What kept you going after that? I, you know, um, I think probably at least in part the anticipation of the interview today. Uh, obviously that's, uh, something that's been on my mind all morning, but the other thing that happens is, um, I'm in the middle of writing, uh, stories for the third volume of, of this enterprise, the third book in the enterprise. 
And once I've got my mind hooked into a story, it's really hard to turn that off. And I tend to have these ideas in the middle of the night and I'll have to get up and write some stuff or wake up in the morning and I'll have some interesting ideas and I have to sit down and write that stuff and, you know, write a few paragraphs and then go off and have breakfast and, you know, do the usual things through the day. But um, I just get obsessed with, with the work that I'm doing. I guess I've been that way for most of my life in, in one respect or another. Have you found that there's been a cost to the obsession? Like, you know, there's, there's a healthy level of obsession where it's like hyper-focused, wanting to get things done. And then there's a level of obsession where it, it starts to destroy everything else in your life. How do you find that balance? Well, I'm not sure that there is a need for a balance in my case. I'm not um, obsessive compulsive at all. Um, it's just that when I get involved in a, in a project, I want to see it through and I work hard, you know, intellectually and, and sometimes physically work hard, very hard to, to get the thing out of the way. <laughs> okay. You know, like when I finish a story, it's done, it's gone. And it'll go off to the editor and it'll come back at some point where we'll argue over, uh, you know, words and passages and things like that. But basically that task is finished and I can go on to something else. So I'm not obsessive in that sense. I'm obsessive uh, when I'm in the middle of a, of a project or a piece of work. I'm just totally focused on it. That's all. Um, but, you know, I, I can walk away from things once they're done and they're just done. That's it. I love it. Coming that a sense of completeness and done gives you a sense of, I imagine, like accomplishment and uh, maybe some relief to then move on to the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, you got to take vacations. Uh, you got to go out and do something completely different to refresh yourself. That's so very important. Um, I'm surprised a lot of people just get so involved with what they're doing. They never do break away and do something different. What does a vacation look like for you? Because you brought up a great point. There's so many people who go on vacation and they call it a vacation, but they end up doing more damage to themselves. Like to them, vacationing is drinking, partying, staying up late, and then they come back from vacation and they don't feel refreshed at all. What, what's your idea of a refreshing vacation? Read a book. <laughs> it's the simplest it can be as simple as that go off and read a novel you know the a good author will take you into a world that you don't normally experience and so you enjoy yourself um you know just living someone else's life in a different world um so that's one way of doing it or you can do physical vacations i've done all kinds of interesting things um you know sailing in the sea and and diving under the ocean and, and doing whitewater rafting and, and kayaking, things of that sort. Uh, that really is a change of experience. And, and you come back really refreshed and, and ready to do something completely different. Um, so, you know, there's, there's different ways of doing vacation, but I think you basically have to do something different from what you normally do on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, most of what you do during, day, during a day-to-day -day experience is a routine something you do every day, pretty much the same way. 
You know, I cook, I cook my breakfast pretty much the same way every day. I do some variations. Sometimes I cook some hot cakes and sometimes I'll cook some bacon, you know, things of that sort. But those are minor variations within a theme. What you really have to do is, is get the hell out of Dodge. Go sit on a ship for a week, you know, do something very different. So I, I love that idea of a vacation being something different than what you typically do. So, you know, if you if you're typically a person who spends time on a beach because, you, you know, you're a surfer, then a vacation for you might be, um, you know, uh, you know, perusing museums in, in Paris or something more. Concrete. Yeah, exactly. And I was a surfer that. And by the way, when you're a surfer, you don't sit on the beach, you're out in the waves. <laughs> and when you're thoroughly exhausted being out in the waves, you get in the car and go home. So it isn't quite the same as beach blanket bingo as the movies make it. But, uh, uh, you know, this is a very interesting experience. And by the way, the, the people I've met out on the surf line are very interesting people. You'd be surprised how many PhDs are out there. Yeah, I had Dr. Angie Huberman on here, and he surfs um, and spends a lot of time in the water, especially first thing in the morning. And, you know, he talks about how taking in vistas, you know, whether it's the, the sun or like the skyline or the shorelines, things like that, being outdoors, being able to zoom out, how refreshing and not, not, maybe not refreshing is the word, but very calming and soothing. Was that your experience of being out there uh, yeah, on a surfboard? Absolutely. You know, it, it's interesting because you meld with nature. It, you make the waves work for you and with you. And if you try and fight what's, what nature is doing to you or, do, you know, the environment you're in, you're going to get in trouble. And I've gotten in trouble a couple of times when I extended myself beyond where my capabilities were. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a thrill. You get sit up, sitting up on a high wave and you're going like gangbusters and you're not thinking about anything in the world except what you're doing. <laughs> and, you know, so I, I mostly surfed when I was a student and I had no thought of, stu of my studies at all when I was out there. It sounds almost meditative because you're talking about, you know, doing something that's so thrilling that it, it forces you to be present. Was that meditative for you or did you actually have yeah, a meditative practice? Uh, well, no, I've never had a, a formal meditative practice, but yeah, there, you know, um, I'm not sure exactly what meditation is other than your mind gets switched into a different uh, form. Uh, for example, I've done a lot of photography and when I'm looking through the lens of the camera, I'm seeing, what's coming through the lens of the camera. I'm not thinking about anything except the, what I'm looking at and the composition, the feel of, of, cre of creating some kind of, a, of an image and capturing an image in, a, in the appropriate way. So um, that's a meditation. It, it's something that takes you out of your ordinary, what you do for a living or, you know, anything like that. It's, it's just, and I, I suspect that's what meditation is all about. I don't know. You know, as I say, I've never been trained to, to, to meditate. I just do things. And every once in a while, I'll find myself in a frame of mind, which is when I, when I get out of that, I'll look back and say, oh, that's an interesting experience I just had. Huh. Isn't that funny? 
So tell us, what is a rocket scientist? I, as a kid growing up, it's like, oh, you know, it was always used uh, as, uh, you know, facetiously, oh, you must be a rocket scientist. But you're an actual rocket scientist. Like, what does that mean, one? And two, were you thrilled to see that we blew up an asteroid millions of miles from the Earth uh, a few days ago? Well, we hit an asteroid. I don't think we blew it up. If we blew it up, that's real information. Uh, interesting information, but we'll find out, you know, it's going to take several more days before we get the information as to what actually happened. Yeah. And I did see the video this morning of the collision and it, it's really pretty impressive. Um, what is a rocket scientist? Well, it's a, you know, we have a huge aerospace industry and people build airplanes and some of the, st some of the things you do have to do with satellites and rockets and things of that sort, but it's basically, um, anything where you're you're involved with some kind of a technical profession um and there are rocket scientists and rocket scientists and yes i know about the facetiousness of it um which is one of the reasons i didn't like to call myself a rocket scientist but my editor insisted on it um see the i i have in fact um had the experience of dealing with satellites. I did have an instrument package that I designed once that went into space, which was a very interesting experience. So that qualifies me as a rocket scientist, I guess. Um, and I've had a lot of uh, experience dealing with the architectures of satellites, what they had to look like and where they went and what they did and so on. So that qualifies me as a rocket scientist. But I have to tell you, um, there's different levels in every profession. You know, if you're a football player and you're a good linesman, you may admire a good end. You know, this guy does magic things with his fingers. And, you know, so uh, different people admire different things. In my particular case, I had the privilege of working for four years side by side with the guys that built the rocket engines that took us to the moon. Those, to me, are the real rocket scientists, and I'm sort of like a junior edition of that. So, you know, you have, you know, there are stars, and then there are superstars, and then there are, I guess, ultra stars or something like that, legends, you could say. So I've seen the real thing, and so my standards are a little different than the, the guy walking around on the street, I guess, uh, who, you know, thinks I'm a rocket scientist. Well, yeah, I guess I am, but then I've got my rocket scientists that I look up to as well. Thank you for sharing. And I asked that because, you know, being a rocket scientist and a book author and, and having so many different adventures, uh, more that we'll, we'll get into. Um, a, a lot of my listeners, because this is a suicide prevention podcast, a lot of them may want to go on these adventures, but in the back of their head, they're saying, is it even worth it? You know, am, am I, is it, am I, is my story worth telling one and then is doing anything worth doing? How, how would you respond to that? The answer is yes. You all, you have to do it. The only way you're going to, to live is to, is to take risks. And um, I was thinking about that this morning. You know, you remember the movie star Wars or not star Wars, but a star, Stargate. Oh, where yeah. There's, yeah, where there's this doorway, it has a kind of a, a liquid mirror thing, and you don't know what's on the other side of that, that partition, that, that silvery partition. 
and you decide, you know, you could be death on the other side or it could be life or some adventure. You don't know. And you, you screw up your courage and you walk through that door and then things begin to happen. The thing that's interesting about that is that gateway, whether you call it a star stargate or a, a door to adventure or in, in the case of role playing, there's all, you know, dun Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. All these role playing, you've got all kinds of doorways that you have to walk through that you don't know what's on the other side. And there's good things or bad things that can happen on the other side. And that's walking through that door is an adventure, but you've got to do it. You can't grow. You can't really live unless when you're faced with a doorway like that, that you just go ahead and go through it. And I've had to do that any number of times, sometimes involuntarily and sometimes voluntarily, you know, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, for example, when I, when I went to Africa, so I'm standing at the airport and I'm looking at the boarding gate and I've had my shots and I've gone through all the illnesses that you have that come with the shots and all the rest of that stuff. But I was warned, Hey, there's a war going on. Where are you going? And so I had to make the decision. Um, do I walk through that boarding gate and get on the airplane? Because as soon as I step through that gate, there's no going back. Well, I did walk through that boarding gate and I did get on the airplane and I did go into a war zone and I came out of it with a great adventure behind me, which I've written up, as a matter of fact. Um, part of that is in, in the book that, you know, that's in the, in the book that I just published. Um, but there's much, much more to come uh, with respect to that particular story. But that's a real adventure. But, you know, you, you just don't know going in how it's going to work out. You're taking a big risk, but you go ahead and do it anyway. And as far as, as individuals are concerned, everybody's got a story and every one of those stories is worth telling. And I, you know, I encourage people to go ahead and, and follow that. It's just so important. Yeah, and I mean, and one of those doors you walked <laughs> through as a kid, you know, you were brought through by your father, um, uh, you know, and so can you tell us that that story about how your father brought you into the family business and the lessons you learned at that young age? I'm assuming that one of those was the lesson, right? Uh, you just got to do it and, and see what's on the other side. My dad was very interesting because I think he got a lot not only from his dad, but from his grandfather. My grand, my great grandfather was a was an honest to God pioneer. I actually had obviously had two of them. Uh, well, four of them, if you if you count my mother's side. But um, on my father's side, both of my great grandfathers were were pioneers. One was a, a scout for a wagon train. The other one um, apparently served in the Seventh Cavalry alongside Custer, which is you know some interesting story, family stories about that. Um, and of course, they handed it down to their sons who in turn handed the, the tradition down to my father, who handed it down to me. And the, the thing that was really interesting was my dad realized for a kid to grow up, he has to, he has to take risks. And, and that's not just risks for the kid, but it's risks for the father as well. So my dad introduced me to all kinds of things that, that today would probably scare the you know the uh, officialdoms you know the, the child protective services but 
So for example, when I'm 10 years old, my dad bought a, a contractor saw, you know, a big table saw. And he taught me how to use the table saw in sawing wood, potentially very dangerous. You can take your hand off very easily. But he, once he taught me how to do it, he left me alone to do various projects with that machine. And uh, that's a level of trust, um, both on his part, and it's also trust on my part, because once I gained the experience and after having been taught, then I could use this machine taking appropriate precautions and go ahead and, and, uh, and do projects and things of that sort. My dad would simply say, we need this to be done, go do it. And I'd do it. Um, my dad had a trade shop and I started working in his trade shop at about 11 years old. It was a, a lithographic uh, preparation shop. And I had to deal with some fairly uh, toxic chemicals. And, you know, once you learn how to deal that, do with that, um, you know, you just let me go ahead and do it. That was my job, one of my jobs that I did. Um, and we did a number of things together uh, working in that, uh, that shop, um, taking things apart. You know, um, we worked on, on refurbishing a, a proof press one day, which involved taking it completely apart, uh, putting the parts in buckets of kerosene to clean the, clean the parts and so on and so forth. A lot of that was very dangerous. But um, under proper supervision, I was uh, expected to go ahead and learn these things. Really important. I, I'm, I strongly encourage that kind of, of uh, family relationship. It's just so very important. To learn that responsibility early on and to feel like you have some agency and an autonomy and, and to have an adult, you know, give that to you. I, I can't imagine how that kind of fueled and fostered your sense for adventure and thrill-seeking? Well, you grow up. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is you realize, yeah, you can do dangerous things, and they really are dangerous. But as long as you have the appropriate uh, understanding of what you're doing and take appropriate precautions, uh, you can get through it. And and that carries you through the your entire life. I mean, everything you... you <laughs> You get on a California freeway, you're doing, you're taking your life in your hands. You know, uh, I would go to work. I, I used to commute 50 miles. So it was a hundred miles round trip every day. And I used to come in and, and talk to my administrative assistant. I says, they tried to kill me this morning. <laughs> Sometimes I'd come in and say twice, they tried to kill me this morning on the drive to work. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, but you do it. You know, once you learn the skills for how to recognize this guy's going to what he's doing is about to kill me, then you 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 know, you, you find ways of getting around the problem. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, that's that's life. Life is full of hazard. Life is full of hazard. Uh, how old are you now, Chester? I'm 80 years old, eight zero. Eight zero, and, and I'm asking because it sounds like you and your your father was, I would assume your sounds like he was one of your best friends growing up. How did you process his passing? Well, he was ninety three when he passed, wow. um, and my mom was ninety five when she passed away. So you know, there it wasn't a matter of regrets; it was a matter of accepting that this is 
what life brings. So there, you know, there's only a moderate amount of sadness that's involved because my dad had lived an extremely rich life. And um, well, just to give, give you an example. Um, so he started out as a printer and he worked his way to the top of that profession. And when he retired, he took up a second profession as an inventor and he had successful inventions in the marketplace. And he was continuing to do that all the way into his mid eighties. And what happened was his inventions had to do with, with the printing industry that he had known throughout his career. But the printing industry changed pretty dramatically with the, with the uh, advent of personal computers and, and the availability of very high um, power, uh, computing power on, on a desktop. So when he was 85, he realized, you know, I, um, this industry has finally passed me by and he retired. That was when he retired. And what he did re with his retirement was catch up on all the things that he hadn't had time to do in terms of reading and listening to music and things like that. Um, and he spent the rest of his, his years doing that. So uh, it was a very fulfilling life. And, and I was observing that from afar, of course, um, because I was living my own life. And, you know, I, there wasn't any real sadness because he had had an extremely fulfilling life. And he was very happy as a consequence of that. And so you, you were happy for him and, and knowing that, you know, it wasn't like there was any anything that was left unsaid or undone. Well, I'm sure part. there were things left unsaid or undone, you know, I, but I, there's an interesting thing that happened. Um, when he was in his last days, he, he called up my sister and he had a very long conversation with her. And I don't know what the contents of that conversation was, but he was able to say things to my sister that he never said to me that I do know. And um, I thought that was really interesting. interesting that he could share more that that there was something that he could share with his sister with your sister that he couldn't share with you what was the interesting part to you well the interesting part was that there was much more to, to him that i didn't know about and but he had a closeness with my sister that my sister is 15 years younger than me so you know different generation and he had developed a completely different relationship with my sister than he had with me um, so, um, I was just, you know, I was amazed. I was actually very, very pleased to hear that he had had that conversation. And when you think about your parents, you know, your, your dad dies at 95, your, your mom dies at 93. What, when you look back, how did they manage conflict? And I'm asking this because there's, you know, there's so much there's so many people who are in couples therapy, marriage therapy, they're struggling in their relationships and people even end their lives because of the conflict in their relationship. How did you see your parents handle conflict? I think they probably did most of their um, arguing things out behind closed doors. Um, there was, there had to have been conflict because my dad took risks, uh, business risks that involved um, 
making heavy financial investments, you know, think, taking on bird, um, um, what would you call it? Burden, you know, financial burdens, going to the bank and getting loans and things of that sort that were that involved significant risk. And but he had to work it out with my mother. I mean, they, the thing that was interesting about the, that marriage is that it was a partnership. It was an equal relationship. There was never any sense of, of one person dominating the other. It was a matter of total mutual respect. Um, each person in the relationship had carved out a piece of of the world and things to do my mom was a was a, a nurse and that was her profession and she did her profession and my dad of course was a printer and he did his profession and there was over some overlap between the two but they shared responsibilities as far as the house was concerned the household and the risks that were being taken in terms of of uh, uh, financial risks and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, I, so I don't think there was a lot of conflict. I think one of the, the things that I found very impressive, <coughs> mom's job was often very, very difficult. And she would come home exhausted and dad would be very tired as well. But dad always did the dishes after dinner. Mom would fix the dinner and dad and I, and you know, when I got to the age where I could help, uh, we did the dishes together and cleaned up the house after the after the supper. You know, so there there was a sharing of of responsibility and and chores as well. Now I have to say I wasn't very good at chores. <laughs> I was too. I had my nose in a book most of the time, but my parents were very tolerant of that. So. I, I probably got away with murder as far as the household chores were concerned, but I did some of it anyway. But I do remember um, that my dad insisted on taking as much of the of the burden off my mother as as he possibly could, despite the fact that he was often exhausted himself. I, at you know, at eighty years old, you I'm looking at you. You look strong. You look fit. And you're sharp as a tack. Is there any chronic pain or any physical pain that you're you're struggling with or have struggled with in the, in the Oh past? yeah. Hey, hey, listen, I may be reasonably sharp as far as my intellect is concerned. <clears throat> but I have to tell you, a year ago I I uh, had a heart attack that nearly killed me. I it was a very, very close run thing. And I've had five surgeries altogether as a result of that heart attack. So um yeah, so I've been in a long convalescence and and a substantial amount of of concern you know my my friends are trying to take care of me and i says you know don't worry about it i'll get through it myself but um but people around me are worried because i've been through something that's been very very difficult and very dangerous for the last year and so what changes have you had to make any dietary changes are they putting you on a treadmill well i take different pills than i used to no, I don't do, I, you know, I've lost my ability to do long walks. I can only take short walks now. Uh, and, and that's partly because I'm of my age and partly because of the uh, uh, substantial amount of trauma that my body's gone through in the last year. So, yeah. And, you know, I'll never be the same. You know, there are things that I wanted to, to do. I'd like to, I've taken two trips through the Grand Canyon uh, river trips. And I wanted very much to be able to do that again. 
but I'm not going to be able to do that because I would be a burden on the on the people around me. So that's off. Um, and, uh, you know, so I will find other adventures. Uh, writing a book, that's an adventure. Um, talking with people, uh, doing these interviews is an adventure because I'm, I'm meeting so many. I've done a bunch of them now, uh, Leo, and um, I'm finding them very entertaining. I mean, you know, I still have to walk through the door and turn the mic on and turn the, the you know, turn the interview on. But once I'm in the middle of it, I'm having fun with the adventure. I, I love how you phrase things because I never thought about interviews as being part of an adventure. But you're right, because when you get to hear someone's story, they, you are imagining yourself uh, along for the ride with them. It, you talked about not wanting to feel like a burden to, uh, you know, to the, the, the group if you went back to the Grand Canyon. And I, I've been to the Grand Canyon myself. I, it's, it's awesome and amazing. Um, have there been times where you have felt like a burden and how did you negotiate those feelings or have you always felt kind of strong and independent and, um, able to impose your will on, on things? Oh, I'm, I'm not imposing will on anything. You know, I'm, a, <laughs> there's an, ex I've done a lot of whitewater. As I say, I've, I've been a boatman. I did run a boat through the Grand Canyon, that second trip that I took. Uh, and I've done kayaking and things like that. There's an expression among boatmen. It's called go with the flow. Man, you don't fight the river. <laughs> you know, river's going to do what it's going to do. And you just have to learn to go with it. Um, and life is a, is like that. I mean, there's on the river, there's rapids that you have to negotiate. And they can be very dangerous. In life, there are rapids, the metaphorical rapids that you have to negotiate. And you have to learn how to go with them and somehow get through it okay. Um, that's not a matter of dominance. That's a matter of, of understanding what you're doing and, and, and um, as, I, as they say, going with the flow, understanding how to cooperate with the circumstances you find yourself in. Um, driving on the freeway, I wasn't kidding about people trying to kill me when I was on the freeway. People do stupid things, and if you're not alert, you're gonna get killed. I've, I've had a couple of major accidents where, where somebody tried to kill me on the freeway and I was able to get through it uh, by thinking ahead what would happen if, if such and such happened. Um, and you've got to do that with life, I think. You have to think ahead. You have to be responsive to what actually happens and you have to adapt yourself to what actually happens. But it's not a matter of domination. It's a matter of cooperation more with, with circumstances, I think, as much as anything. Yeah, that ability to think ahead and cooperation. Yuval Harari wrote a book, Sapiens, and he talked about it's man's ability to cooperate that has allowed us to thrive and move forward. Are you married? Yes, I am. I was married for 20 years, and my wife uh, passed away about 15 years ago. She literally dropped dead right in front of me. And I got to tell you, that's a shock. <laughs> you, you you don't get over that one easily as you probably are well aware um and that probably opens up uh, a topic that you want to explore because how the heck did i get out of that because i was just absolutely devastated by that experience absolutely you mentioned you were shocked and when we talk about the stages of grief 
shocked is is the first stage of it. Can you talk to us about how you navigate if if you're comfortable with talking about it and sharing? Yeah, I'm I'm comfortable with it. Um, and I've written about it uh, in my book. I I write about what that experience, a little bit of what that was experience was like, and and how I managed to get myself out of it. To a great extent, the writing that I've done is a consequence of that. It's a the writing I've done was a process that I deliberately started to heal myself because I needed to dig myself out of it. The amount of depression that you're in with an experience like that is indescribable. Um, any anybody who's gone through it understands. I don't have to explain it. If you've never experienced it, there's nothing I can say to to tell you what it's like. It's just you have to experience it to to appreciate it. Um, and the the problem that you have when you're in that state is how the heck do you get out of it? I mean, you can you can just stop, and you know, or you can just claw your way back up out of the canyon because it's a very deep canyon. <clears throat> in my case, what I did was I just I had a bunch of stories and that I had shared with my wife uh, Sarah. And I had written some of the stuff and she was an English major among other things. And so she um, had a, the ability to critique my stories and thought they were, that I was had some talents along those lines. So I just started writing. I wrote stories about things that I had experienced. They're all true stories, by the way. And um, what I found was every, every one of those stories that I wrote, I, I started thinking of them as a le letter to my dear Sarah wherever she happened to be, you know, I was writing a letter to her. And um, so I wrote one letter after another, after another. And then um, it turned out I had enough to more than fill a book as it turned out. So I ran in, ran into an editor at a, at a, a convention once and um, mentioned this. And she said, send me a couple of stories. So I did, and she loved it. So we started working together on producing the first book. That was Ina Hillebrandt, and a really outstanding individual. So um, that was how I worked my way out of the depression, was basically by writing letters to my wife. So you're writing letters to your wife, which then you turn into a book. Were there, was there something uh, that surprised you about that the grieving process and about how you handled it or maybe how people responded to you? Um, yeah, um, let me give you an incident. So I have a, a neighbor that was down the street and shortly before Sarah died, she had lost her husband and I heard her wailing in agony and grief as a result of that. And then the night after Sarah died, I was wailing the same way. And she apparently passed the house and she heard it. So a day or two later, she came and knocked on the door. I didn't know this particular neighbor before that time, by the way. She knocked on her door and, and came in to console me. Um, extraordinary, people take care of each other uh, in difficult circumstances. And you don't turn that down. You, you you know you recognize that's a matter of love. And of course, during the the funeral arrangements, we had Sarah had tons of friends. They came from all over for the for the funeral. And 
what I found really interesting was they were not only showing her love, their love for her, they were showing their love for me as well. And that's an extraordinary thing to be, to be the focus of love. It, it's really an, an amazing experience. Wow. To be the focus of love, right? People are putting their arms around you, consoling you. I'm sure bringing you a lot of food. Do you, ha do you, do you have a favorite food? Do you have a food that uh, you turn to? <laughs> no, but I said, well, we decided to have an Irish wake, but you can't, you're not, your Irish wakes are supposed to be before the funeral, but that didn't happen. So we had the wake afterwards and people brought all kinds of interesting liquors and, you know, whiskeys of various kinds. Uh, that was the first time in my life I'd ever sampled a whiskey, but I just sampled it. I'm not a, I'm not an alcohol drinker at all, but it was an interesting experience. We had a good time. We had a good time. So you um, don't drink your, you said you're Irish. No, I'm not Irish. Oh, I'm, you're not. I'm half Sicilian. Um, my dad is a, was a Yankee and my mother was a Sicilian. Uh, which is an interesting combination. And there's a story behind how they got together. But um, yeah, my grandparents were born in Sicily. My mom was born in Brooklyn, but boy, is she Sicilian. Wow. And so why did you stay away from alcohol? Uh, because when I was very young, um, probably a teenager, I got a little alcohol and I found that I got dizzy with just a very small amount. I think I was just sipping some wine. I was a hypersensitive to the alcohol. And so I'm not anymore, by the way, I can drink now without that sensitivity. But um, I just said, this is bad stuff. You know, I don't like uh, what, what this uh, chemical is doing to me. So I just never drank. Now, um, I will drink a half a glass of wine for ceremonial reasons, you know, but I won't, I won't indulge. I stay away from it as, as a rule. So I know that you write in, and that the writings are love letters on, on some level to Sarah, and it's a way of you going on adventures. Have you struggled with any feelings of loneliness uh, during the time? Oh, well, of course, you know, and, I miss and, my wife tremendously. I still miss her after all these years. Um, we had a really, uh, close productive relationship we yeah there were there were obvious um issues that had to be worked out when we first got married uh but we got through most of those fairly quickly and smoothly you know there was so there was no real serious heartburn at least there wasn't any on my part i you know i didn't get any impression from sarah that that she was particularly upset about anything um so you know once we had worked out the the, the way of living together and and you know, two people getting together, they're two people are very different. <clears throat> it doesn't matter how much they love each other. They're definitely different individuals with different life experiences. And so there's has to be a substantial amount of negotiation involved. And your life changes. It's not the same after you get married than as it was before. So, and, it's not, and it's not the same after you lose your wife as well. I mean, it, it, you're, you're split in two and half of you has gone away. It's just, it's pretty bad. It's pretty devastating. And you have to work your way out of it. And your friends help you work your way out, by the way. They're really important. Is that, you talked about in the beginning, there, there were a few things that you and Sarah had to work out. And was it your friends that helped you 
to negotiate and and work your way through some of those snafus? Oh no, no, we worked it out together. <laughs> you have to understand that my my dear Sarah was a brilliant woman, absolutely first class intellect, and uh, she was at least as strong as I was, uh, and maybe even even stronger. So yeah, we had some knockdown dragouts at the beginning, but they were they were friendly knockout knockdown. There was no serious pain involved. It was just a matter of negotiating what life was going to be like with the two of us living together. Um, and, and there was no um, animosity. It was a friendly negotiation, however strong the negotiation was. Are there, is there a book that you have reread um, over your life or that you've gifted to other people more than, than others? Yeah, well, there's a lot of stories. There's, I, I particularly enjoy Robert Heinlein's science fiction books, but I, I grew up right, reading science fiction, by the way. I toured the galaxy with, <laughs> with science fiction. Um, so I've reread a number of his books, and I just happen to enjoy his approach to the world, which is it's kind of a devil-may-care approach. But I think there's one, one book that, that um, I particularly treasure. I, I like Rudyard Kipling as a, as a writer. I think he's next to Shakespeare. He's the greatest. Say uh, his name again. Rudyard Kipling, the, the great English writer from a hundred years ago. And um, I, I think he's a grandmaster of the English language. It's just absolutely outstanding. And, and one book that he wrote, uh, called Kim, K-I-M. It's about a, a young Indian boy, East Indian boy, and his adventures in East India um, during the British Raj. And um, I identified with Kim for, for whatever reasons, and I still do, of uh, this, this kid that just managed to survive these, these incredible experiences and came out um, a really great young man. It's just an extraordinary story. I've read that. I started, I read that the first time when I was an undergraduate and I've read it several times since. And every time, every once in a while, I'll just pick it up and go back. And even though I roughly remember the, the story, the details come back in a way that, that it's different because I've grown through my life over the years. I've grown and look at the life a little bit different than I did before when I had previously read the book. So I see a different thing in the book every time I read it. And, you know, with your book, From the Potato to Star Trek and Beyond, Memoirs of a Rocket Scientist, what are you hoping that readers will get from this book? Well, I hope they're entertained because the whole point in publishing the book was, was to entertain people. Uh, the stories are true stories. And people will look at those experiences and probably uh, relate some of what I've experienced to what they've been going through themselves. Uh, some difficult things, some, some uh, easy things. Um, but most of the stories are adventures in, of one sense or another. Either they're physical adventures where I've done some things that were hazardous or they're, they're people adventures because I've run into some, some of the most extraordinary people. I, it, I, I guess if I'm a collector of anything and you know everybody 
collects this and that's nicks and acts of one sort or another. But I collect people and it, uh, my favorite uh, things to collect are the interesting people that I've run into over the years. And boy, have I run in some, some amazing creatures, some amazing uh, individuals. Um, and so I write about some of those guys um, and men and women both in, in the book and so, uh, relate some of their stories. Um, and I think that's a the really good thing to do. I, you know, it's just, we don't live as individuals. We live in a community and everybody in that community has got a story that's interesting. I've never run into anybody that didn't have an interesting story. Um, some stories are far more interesting than others. I will grant you that, but, um, everybody's got a story and, and it's important to listen. And, and actually that's one of the things that Sarah told me, she was a psychotherapist uh, at the end of her life. That was her profession. And she basically said, turn off the noise in your head and listen, you know, because at a certain point when somebody's saying something, you're, you're developing counter arguments to what they're saying, or you're, going off on some other tangent of experience that's related to what somebody is saying. And Sarah taught me to just turn all of that off and listen. And I think that's an extremely valuable thing to learn. Because everybody's got good stories. They really do. Uh, thank you for sharing your story with us, Chester. Uh, and thank you listeners for tuning in. Last question I, I want to ask, and I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Chester? There is a stargate, and you've got to walk through that door because you don't know what kind of an adventure you're going to have on the other side. If you don't walk through that gate, if you take your life, it's over. That's it. But if you do walk through that gate, however difficult it may seem to be, you may be absolutely astonished at what's on the other side and very, very pleased that you walk through that door. Thank you so much, Chester. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for calling for help, calling the 988 or any of the other international phone numbers, whether you're in Budapest or in Alaska or Hawaii or Peru, or if you're on an international space station, wherever you are, wherever you are in the world, or if you're on Mars hanging out, I don't know. I think we got like three people up there or something. Um, there, are inter there are phone numbers for you to call. You can talk, chat, text, go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, get 10% off. And make sure you go get that book from the potato to Star Trek and beyond memoirs of a rocket scientist by Chester L. Richards. Thank you so much, Chester. Well, thank you, Leo. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you.